Christmas edition of the Electrical Podcast. And what better way to celebrate Christmas than with George Formby singing there about the despicable practice of human trafficking, something that tears families apart all over the globe. In my professional few Christmases back where myself and the rest of my family were sat around the festive table eating our Christmas dinner and it got to the point of the dinner where it was time to pull the crackers. Um, Everyone has crackers right outside of Britain that's an international thing surely the cracker surely it is Christmas crackers right so uh, there were about six of us around the table and we all pulled crackers and obviously there was a hat in there a little present and a joke so i read the joke i'd got to myself first uh, and it read what do you call a man that works in a perfume shop on christmas eve and the answer was frank incense it doesn't really make do you understand you know so frank it's so a frankincense but not frankincense it's his name's frank and he works in scents like perfumes it doesn't make any sense right it's rubbish but they're meant to be aren't they but this was disappointing i felt because it wasn't uselessly rubbish it was it was just a bit nonsensical so everyone read their joke out got to me and they said go on read yours and i said no 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 honestly it's not even badly funny it is it's not worth it they said go on and i said all right <clears throat> what do you call a man that works in a perfume shop on christmas eve and my grandfather my dear grandfather put down both knife and fork and said, a gay. (laughs) And he wasn't being satirical. He thought that might be the answer to the question, what sort of man works in a perfume shop on Christmas Eve? Um, And he's not homophobic, you know, but maybe it was an idea to get homophobic crackers. Maybe that would be a way to... Uh, to break the ice at Christmas dinner from now on. You could have little jokes you pull out, and they're not really jokes. Um, It just says something like, uh, what sort of bloke goes carol singing on Christmas Eve? And the answer is, a massive bender. I've mentioned that my mum runs a village petrol station and hardware store. And I was in there quite recently, and there's a sign atop one of the shelving units that reads, if we don't have it, we can get it. If you look at your iPod or your computer now, you can see that I've I've taken a picture of it. That's all part of the service. If we don't have it, we can get it. And that's pretty self-explanatory. If we don't have the item that you're looking for, we can order it for you. The shop likes to pride itself on that. Anyway, the other day, there were two lads in there, maybe about 18, 19 years old, And one of them is looking at the sign a bit puzzled and sort of mouthing the words slowly to himself. And his mate steps forward and says to him, what does it say? And the first lad reads, if we don't have it, we can get it. And the second lad looked at him, a frown on his face and said, get what? And his mate said, it doesn't say. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's stupid, isn't it? That is really stupid. He didn't, but uh, in real life, he didn't. But I'd like to if he'd have come up to me and said, what's it mean if we don't have it, we can get it? And I could have gone, oh, well, it means if you want something that isn't here, the shop can order it for you. Oh, what, like a toaster? Yeah, like a toaster. And then he goes back to his mate and says, it means a toaster. <laughs> I thought that, given the season, I'd tell you a Christmas story. I'm not going to get you any presents, am I? So, a story it is. Which is better than an Xbox or a radio-controlled car. It is. And Christmas should be about fireside stories anyway. So long as the person telling the story isn't an idiot, it's not all about presents. The three wise men have a lot to answer for, for turning up at the stable with presents. I mean, I know it was Christmas, but they should have just turned up with some stories for the baby Jesus, because... If they had, it would make the next few minutes feel more like Christmas. If one thing that can be said for the three wise men is that they don't half cheapen a podcast. Pity. It's a pity it's all about presents Christmas, though. And that's why they ended up calling it Yuletide, because it's just kids saying, you'll give me that. Millions of kids going, you'll give me that, or you'll have a little terror on your hands for the next ten days. So, a heartwarming, festive story. I've mentioned previously about these Christmas corporate gigs that comedians sometimes get hoodwinked into doing during December to pay for our winter fuel bills and bar bills. Well, two Christmases ago, a comedy booker rang me up and said, would you like to go down to Aldershot Army Barracks and play their sergeant's Christmas party? And... I should have said no, but I must have been injecting myself with heroin or something at the time because I said, yeah, no problem, consider it done. Now, if I'd thought about this, I'd have realised that I wasn't Jim Davidson and that my style of whimsy might not be what a troop of squaddies would want to listen to during their annual festive knees up. If I'd have thought about it, I might have acknowledged that this was never a good arrangement for either them or me. It was potentially suicide. But nonetheless, I agreed. So mid-December, I set off for Aldershot, which is southwest of London, on the train. And I didn't have any details except that I was to be met outside Aldershot station by Private Reynolds in a white minivan and then driven to the base. The exact instructions that I got through the army, through the booker that the army sent in were get to Aldershot station, 1800 hours, which means six o'clock in the evening, doesn't it? But this being the army, they have to be precise, you know just in case I turned up to do stand-up at six in the morning. 1,800 hours. Get to Aldershot Station, 1,800 hours. Private Reynolds will be there to pick you up in a white minivan. This is all I know. Now, the train out of Waterloo was delayed. It set off on time, but then it got stuck behind a commuter train or a freight. It kept stopping, and as a result, I got to Aldershot Station about 20 minutes late. But I had no contact number or anything, so I walk out of the station at 1820 hours and see a white minivan waiting with the engine running. I walk over, tap on the window. Hello, Private Reynolds. And this guy, mid-twenties, in uniform, rolls down the window and says, You're 20 minutes late. And I say, Yeah, sorry, the train was delayed. And he said, You'd never make it in the army. Now, you don't want to be sarcastic to him because, you know, he's got a gun. But I said, Yeah, I, well... I wasn't, I wasn't driving the train. And he, as a joke, you know, and he went, good job, you're not qualified to drive a train. 
And this, of course, is, is the army mentality, taking things at face value, unable to quickly adjust into the civilian preset of irony and cynicism. So anyway, I walk around front of the van, get in the van, which sets off out of Aldershot, away from the reassurance of streetlights and out into the dark countryside, uh, en route to the barracks. And then Reynolds turns to me, Private Reynolds turns to me and he says, so uh, you funny then or what? Which is kind of pointless. It's a pointless thing to ask a comedian, even if a comedian doesn't really have any relationship anymore with the material uh, they've been trotting out a thousand times. It, at least that material still at least works or they wouldn't receive bookings. If you, so they do consider themselves or their act to be funny. If you, if you went to a hairdresser's and said to the hairdresser, so you think you can cut hair? Even if that hairdresser doesn't deep down consider themselves to be a particularly talented hairdresser, it's still rather demeaning stroke insulting and would perhaps instill doubt in their own mind about being able to cut your hair, which presumably is the last thing you want to do when you go and visit a hairdresser. Or if you're being led into an execution chamber in a jail where the electric chair, old Sparky, awaits, you don't turn to the guy in charge and go, so you know how to use this thing or what? Yeah? Can you know how to turn it on? Do you even know how to turn it on, you idiot? You wouldn't do that. You'd want them to feel expert for your own sake. So Reynolds has turned and said to me, you funny then or what? Tell us a joke. Which again, anyone that says that to a comedian, especially one like myself, who you might have garnered by now, doesn't actually know any jokes, it's... It's barking up the wrong tree and it's never going to get a satisfactory response. Even someone like Jimmy Carr or Tim Vine, you know, who only tell gags, as it were, would still struggle in this environment to make Private Reynolds awash with mirth, right? So I deflect the question and just try and... I try and make friends by just asking questions. And I'm genuinely a bit concerned about the whole thing now, about the whole gig, the whole situation. So I ask, I say, um, listen, Reynolds, what do you think they want me to talk about? And he looks at me and says, talk about what you want, mate. They've been on the piss since lunchtime, right? And now I'm thinking, oh, no. I mean, they've been drinking for six hours. This is going to be tricky. I was trying to be positive, perhaps thinking they'll be so drunk that anything I say or do will be hilarious, but knowing deep down that this wasn't going to be the case. And then Reynolds says, right, thank God. He says, oh, I know what you could talk about. Did you ever see that episode of Top Gear where Jeremy Clarkson, he didn't actually say Jeremy Clarkson, he went Clarkson because he's familiar with the work of Jeremy Clarkson. He went, did you ever see that episode of Top Gear where Clarkson is driving around through this bombed out village and there's a bunch of snipers all shooting at him? And this rung a bell, actually, somehow, somewhere, probably on daytime cable or something. I had seen that episode of Top Gear and I went... Yeah, 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 it's like a, a, a military exercise. And he's trying to, and he went, that was us. They did it in our training facility over there. They shot it over there. It's called the Shep. And I was thinking, right, okay, talk about Top Gear. Talk about Top Gear, but preferably not in a smart-ass, dismissive, truthful way. And then, so we get to the entrance of the barracks. There's two blokes there with machine guns on the gate and drive in. Now, the first thing we pass through is this large area of housing, or what passes for housing, because this was worse than an estate. I mean, I live in real life on an estate with a bad reputation, but this was like something out of a film about Sarajevo in the 90s. Some of the houses didn't have windows. There was broken glass, broken indoors. And I said, 
Reynolds, gee, is this where you live? And he went, yeah, it's crap, in it? We hate it. And I had a brainwave. I said, I said, listen, Reynolds, if I go on stage tonight and say, hey, I was watching that episode of Top Gear the other day. You know, the episode where Jeremy Clarkson is driving around this show messed up village. Hey, I think I drove through that on the way in. He went, oh, listen, they'd love that. So now... I'm feeling more confident, right? I've got something to work with, I think, to myself, right? We drive up to the sergeant's mess and it's just, you know the pub in Shameless, um, the, the TV show Shameless, that the pub they drink in, single story, built in the 60s. It looked like that, except this building had gangs of squaddies falling out the windows and running around outside. It already looked like a night gone wrong, right? So get out the van, walk in, and there's basically pandemonium in there. There's a stage with a mic set up on it and, and amps and instruments for a band they'd booked to follow me. Now, if you're a band, you've got a chance, haven't you? No back chat, just play loud and fast. They might like it. But stand up when I say, you're not Jim Davidson. You're a wishy-washy liberal anti-royalist. I had my doubts this was going to work. So the sergeant in charge marches over, Sergeant Gripper or someone, and he does that handshake that crushes the bones. You know, you, you need to shake hands firmly. Of course you do. But this was done to intimidate. And he says... Right, you're 20 minutes late. And I said, yeah, we've been through this. And he went, right, I'll introduce you in five minutes. So I pop to the gents and just stare at myself in the mirror for a bit. You know, when you, you do that thing thinking, oh, look, look, whatever. It will still be Tuesday tomorrow. It doesn't matter. For reassurance, I wasn't resigned to defeat at this stage. I mean, I like a tough crowd sometimes. It gives you a workout. But I, I did just think it doesn't matter. Whatever happens now, it's still Tuesday tomorrow. So I walk back into the room, into the main hall, and there are no seats, no tables, just a couple of hundred blokes staggering about. Not a woman in sight, by the way, some party. And Sergeant Gripper gets up onto the stage and he takes the microphone and goes, Right, OK, settle down, lads. Fuck off! Fuck off! Right, hey, right, settle down, lads. Got a comedian for you. Fuck off! Fuck off! Here he is, Stanley McHale. So I get up and fuck off. And I go, hey, 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 lads, all right, listen. I was watching that episode of Top Gear the other day. You know when they're driving around that bombed-out village? <laughs> hey, I think I drove through that on the way in. Nothing, right? Nothing. And then this bloke turned, walked to the stage and went, Are you talking about where I live? Are you talking about where I live? Now, <laughs> the room goes quiet and... In stand-up, the, the thing is, no matter, no matter what situation you're in, no matter how bad it might seem, you've always got to retain an air of being in control. You've always got to look like you're in control. So I said, yeah, I am talking about where you live. Do they make you live there? So when you go to Iraq, you think, this is all right. Now, uh, that didn't get a laugh, as you might well imagine. And in the back of my head, I have now realised that I've made quite a catastrophic misjudgment. But what it did do is focus the eyes of all 200 squaddies at me on the stage. There was certainly now no murmuring or hubbub. There was silence. And then this massive guy just shouted, tell us a joke! Right? And... I tried to deflect it. I, I haven't got any jokes per se, as previously discussed. But he walks right up to the stage. He weighs 300 pounds, missile through his head. Tell us a joke now! And he must have been the alpha dog of the, 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 the squadron because 
Everyone else in the room seemed to sense that something was about to happen and they shut up. Suddenly, it was a bit of a standoff between me and him, with him aggressively, if reasonably, asking the comedian to tell a joke. Now, there's a response when someone says, tell us a joke to a comedian at a comedy night. And that response was coined by the late, great Malcolm Hardy. Malcolm Hardy, who I had the pleasure of meeting a couple of times back in the day, was a legendary figure who ran the Tunnel Club in Greenwich, which was notorious for heckling, and then later up the creek in Greenwich, which is, well, still is a, a great club, but, but notorious for not suffering fools. And Malcolm was a comedian that ran these places. Uh, he was a comedian because he was incredibly funny, but he didn't really have any jokes. Uh, he had a catchphrase, which was, oi, oi, um, which was also the bulk of his material. And he also had unfeasonably large uh, testicles, which sometimes he would reveal on stage. This is sort of what he did. Get your bollocks out, Malcolm! No, no, no. Get your bollocks out, Malcolm! No, oi, oi. So this was his act, basically. But anyway, he had a response to tell us a joke which sort of remains the best put-down of all time. And so here I was, back in the sergeant's mess, trapped within these barracks with this enormous man shouting, Tell us a joke! And so I thought I'd turn to the late, great Malcolm Hardy for inspiration. So I look at the guy and I say, All right, I'll tell you a joke. An Englishman, a Scotsman and an Irishman all think you're a c Now... I'm sorry about the language. I set out from the start for a no swearing policy in the podcast because I didn't want that little explicit tab um, in, the, in the iTunes listing. But I feel I should tell this story the way it happened. And anyway, being a roughhouse army gig, I thought that would go down well. I thought everyone would suddenly, I thought it would break the ice. I thought all the other squaddies would go, hey! But they didn't. They went, oh. And a stranger, deeper silence fell over the room because... Clearly, I just said this to completely the wrong person. And this man walked to the lip of the stage, just stared up at me, frowned slightly in confusion and said, what did you just say to me? Now, as I've said, when you do stand up, it's vital that you always remain or give the illusion of remaining completely dominant and in charge. You can't show fear, uh, remorse or uncertainty. So I just looked down at him and said, um, what I said was an Englishman, a Scotsman and an Irishman um, all think that you're a And now the room had the mood of a funeral and he continued to stare up at me and he said do you know how many men I killed in Afghanistan this year and by now I'm thinking oh, the gigs on the slide in it you know I, <laughs> I feel I might have lost them to some degree but I just say no I don't 12 do you know how many men this company killed in Afghanistan this year. No. 308. Now, we've all been in a situation where our brain thinks of something to say and then another bit of our brain, maybe our soul, says, whatever you do now, don't say what you've just thought of. But then you just start saying it anyway. 308, he said. And I said, well, 
that's not that impressive. I've got a PlayStation as well. <laughs> now, at this point, Bedlam. Bedlam in shoes. They want to kill me, and they probably could have done. The MOD, the Ministry of Defence, could have covered it up as an accident, but thankfully, Sergeant Gripper, he gets me, and I'm smuggled out the building. Private Reynolds is waiting in the minivan. I'm put in the back, and I hear Gripper say to, to Reynolds, he says, you do not communicate with this man, you do not respond to this man, I'll meet you at the gates. So now I'm in the back thinking... Yeah, this isn't the best gig I've ever done. I might have lost them. I, I, I think I might be taken into a field and shot as well. This isn't the best thing. So we, we get to the gate, get out, Gripper arrives, and he just says, right, you're not getting paid. That's one thing. Now, this is a relief, if anything, not getting paid. So what? As long as I keep my legs, you know, I'll be able to walk to other forms of employment. But then he sticks a finger in my face and says, you see, the difference between you and me is I know about the real world. And I'm thinking, I didn't say this, I'm not completely demented, I know when I'm beat, but I was thinking, well, no, you don't, you know about the army world, which, no disrespect for the army, but that's different from the real world on purpose, for a reason. I know about the real world, get up, oh, 0500 hours, make bed, go on a 10-mile run, eat breakfast in mess with 300 men, dig hold in field, camp in it for three days with limited rations, that's not the real world, is it? The real world, get up around eight, have some toast, go to work, go to Boots for one of the meal deal, read the paper. So I have to walk back to Aldershot Station. No, I didn't. I got a cab back to Aldershot Station to pay to get back to, to Civvy Street. And there's a pub next to the station. So I just get in there, pint, down pint, second pint, ring agent and explain that now I'm just in bouts of relief to be out and I'm not concentrating. And I just start slagging off the army to her on the phone going, the bloody idiots, I was nearly killed. Finish the phone call, look around. It's an army pub. Everyone looking at me. Rushed out, got on the first train, which was going away from London. Anyway, there's my Christmas story. Uh, I hope it warmed the cockles. It's about half past seven in the evening. It's time once again to join Alan Merrick, the great, 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 great grandson of John Merrick, the Elephant Man, as he continues his quest in the unforgiving swampland of the London dating scene. Now, those of you that were with us last week will recall that we hit a bit of a low point with not just Alan, but me, myself, if I'm honest, thinking that perhaps we were wasting our time or that this was an unfair or unsuitable platform for these discussions, given, you know, their seemingly inevitable outcome every week. And there was a danger, it seemed, that last week would be the last time we caught up with Alan. But I'm delighted to say that he joins us on the line again this evening. Good evening, Alan. Good evening, Stanley. Are you all right? Oh, yes, yes. Never better. How are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm all right, thanks. It's very nice to have you back. I, th I think a few people were worried that last week would be 
the last time that we heard from you. Oh, I was just being silly. And after all, it's nearly Christmas, which is a wonderful time of year. Not a time to be downhearted. You, you like Christmas, do you? Oh, absolutely I do. I adore it. I love seeing all the shops decorated and carol singers by the tube station. What's not to like? Well, I think some people find uh, the forced jollity uh, a little bit of a downer, don't they? And then some, I, I really like seeing my family, but some people find the whole proximity of family a bit, a bit strange. But they don't realise how lucky they are. I mean, I don't have family, and I imagine that's something to cherish. So I can't really side with them there. I think Christmas is a magical time. You like it, don't you? Uh, yeah, no, yeah, I do. But you know the bit, the, but the whole bit between Christmas and New Year, that's like a row of Sundays, isn't it? You don't know where you are or what day it is. And you, you, I find I end up looking forward to the 3rd of January, you know, when things are just a bit more regular. Well, that's just me. Oh, I don't. I like Christmas and New Year. New Year especially. <laughs> Do you ever make resolutions? Um, not specific ones. I think it's good to set yourself targets for the coming year. I mean, I do that. But do you mean, like, uh, giving up smoking and things like that? Well, no. More things like what you want to achieve in the coming year. And so what sort of thing do you normally pledge then? What, what were your resolutions last New Year's Eve, for example? To get a girlfriend. That was one. Right. But that's probably a resolution most years, isn't it? It's been my resolution every year since I was 15, yes. But you see, that's why I'm not pro-specific resolutions. Because, well, with that resolution, getting a girlfriend, that's in the lap of the gods, isn't it? No matter how hard you try, and God knows you've tried, you still have to be reliant on fate or whatever for that to come true. Yes, but there's nothing wrong with leaving things up to fate, as long as you think positive. But that's what I find so remarkable about you, Alan. This optimism. An optimism in the face of, don't take this the wrong way, perpetual defeat. Oh, I don't know about perpetual defeat. I mean, the important thing is that every day is a learning curve, isn't it? And every day is a fresh experience. If, if you learn from it, then it isn't really defeat. Are you high? No, it's just, well, I mean, when I come back from one of my dates, I am normally a bit down, and then I come on here and talk about it, which has, you'll have noticed, upset me a tad. But then, afterwards, I feel quite calm and refreshed, and I can organise a new date for Saturday and start to concentrate on that and look forward to it. So it's not really all bad. Well, I'm glad having a weekly chat on here helps. I, I, I had a niggling fear, especially last week, that I was torturing you or something. Oh, no. If it were torture, I wouldn't come on here, would I? I'm not a fool. No, you're most certainly not. Um, I tell you a New Year's resolution you could make, though. 
uh, one that is in your own hands, Alan. Get another job. I mean, working for Mr. Rookfeather in that darkroom, and he's cut your wages, so screw it. I've been considering that. I think I might hand him my notice, make a fresh start. But Mr. Rookfeather says I could never have a job working directly with the public. But I don't know. That's what I'd like. Yeah, but Rookfeather, he's only saying that to knock your confidence and keep you at his place on low wages. Don't listen to him. He's, he's just making it up. You think? Well, I appreciate that thought. I must say, this is the last podcast, isn't it? I'll miss these chats. Yeah, it does feel sad in a way. The last podcast for a while. They'll be back in the spring sometime. Um, so... I suppose the time is nigh, Alan, Mr Merrick, for us to crack on with the formalities. Or, actually, seeing as it's Christmas, we could just chat about anything else and just skip the date bit. No, no, like I say, I enjoy talking it through. Right you are. So, who was the lucky lady this week? Annette. Oh, the wonderful Annette. Annette? Uh, French, perhaps? Yes, she's from Toulouse, but she's been working in London for the last three years. What's she doing? She's a scientist at a pharmaceutical company. I was a bit concerned when I saw that on her profile, because I thought, oh, hello, animal testing. But she wrote back explaining that it's all very ethical. Her work doesn't involve animals at all, so that was a relief. She's an academic, a French academic. That's the stuff, isn't it? Um, and where did you arrange to meet? A vegetarian restaurant called Blah Blah Blah, which I think is a wonderful name for a restaurant. It's on Goldhawk Road in Shepherd's Bush. And she's vegetarian too, is she? Yes. I thought of changing my selection policy to strictly vegetarian. I mean, you're going to have more in common from the off, aren't you? Yeah, I suppose. So, um, what time did you arrange to meet? At and you got there? Oh, well, it was all a bit of a disaster. I intended to get there for four-ish, but then the tube suddenly ground to a halt and I was stuck down underground for two and a half hours. Of course, I couldn't call. There wasn't any reception and I didn't even have her phone number, only an email address, and my phone can't send emails and things, so I was a bit stuck. Thankfully, they got us moving again just in time, and I got to the restaurant at 7.15. What? Oh, right. So, less time to prepare, but then less time to get nervous. Well, that's right. I mean, I was panicked at the time, stuck underground. But ultimately, it's probably not such a bad thing. And a few glasses of wine to steady yourself? Yes. How many? Well, only three, because I simply didn't have the time. Right. So really, this is the first time you've not been smashed out your tree. Interesting. How did that feel? Well, like I say, I was worried, but I suppose it's no bad thing being sober. No, I think most people are when they arrive on a date. So, 
gets to eight, how prompt was she? Oh, very good. Um, five minutes past eight, which is perfect, really. Token lateness, ladies' prerogative, but essentially politely on time. Excellent. Good start. So, okay. First impressions. Oh, she was a marvel. I mean, I know I seem to say this every week, but she was just divine. One of the most beautiful, naturally beautiful women I've ever seen in my life. She was about five foot six, brunette, a friendly, fine face, very delicately pretty. Um, she wore a woolen skirt and a white blouse under a green cardigan. Oh, she, she was exceptionally chic, but naturally chic. You know, the way French women can be. Um, her hair was tied up in a French pleat, but this was done in a casual way, not authoritarian or business-like. And a pair of the most incredible sparkling green slip-on shoes, size five. They, they had little jewels and pieces of glass all over them, so they reflected the light. Quite amazing. I was absolutely bowled over. Blimey. She sounds great. French academic as well. So, Alan, here we go then. Take it from here. Well, I'd selected a table for two against a far wall. I find this affords a little bit of privacy. You don't have people on either side of you, but it was slightly around a corner, which meant that although I could see the front door perfectly well, it would mean she might not instantly see me. So when she came in, I had to stand, as I normally do, and get her attention. So as she looked over in my direction, I did my little wave and said, Yoo-hoo, Annette, it's me, it's Alan. And she looked over at me, and then she put her own hand up and waved back smiled and walked over. Right, she... Oh, my goodness. It's never got to this stage. Well, I didn't know what to do. She came over and shook my hand and did a little peck on the cheek thing. And I've never done that before. I mean, I've practised, but I've never done it. But it seemed to go all right. And then she sat down... And I remembered I was still standing up, so I quickly sat down too. And there we were, just sat opposite each other. And she said, what is it? And I said, I was confused. I said, what is what? And she said, the condition on your face, what is it? Is it neurofibromatosis? And I said, yes, I've had it a long while, but I see my specialist and he's very confident. And she says it's interesting because this is the field she's working in, or very similar. And we start to talk about the advances that they're making. And Annette says that she's convinced the cure is less than two years away. Anyway, after we get off the medical stuff, 
I start telling her about myself and the best thing, I kept making her laugh. When the waiter came to take our order, we were both giggling at something and when he said, can I take your order, it somehow made it funnier. We couldn't even speak. <laughs> oh, this is wonderful! And she stayed for the whole meal? She Well, of course she did. And we had a lovely dessert. And then she suggests going to a pub she knows around the corner. So it, it was a success? Well, yes. Perseverance, that's the key. Like I've said, Stanley, a faint heart... Never ne won a fair lady, yeah. Oh, it was one of the most magical evenings I... <laughs> That's her now. I'd better go. We're making a casserole and she wants a hand. You don't mind? No, you, you go, you go help. I'm overwhelmed. This is, this is wonderful. Oh, thank you. And listen... Um, here's wishing you a very, very Merry Christmas and a very Happy New Year. And to you, Alan, and to you, mate. Greetings of the season. To, to you and um, Annette. Uh, listen, good luck, sir. Cheerio. Cheerio, Alan. Well, bless my soul. Anna! 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 Come in here a second. What's the matter? Alan's got hitched. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, that's, that's lovely. It's incredible. She's this French academic and uh, she thinks she knows a, a cure for his condition. And Oh, look, 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 look. let's open a bottle, shall we? Let's celebrate. End of the series. Okay, yeah. Hang on. There we are. Hang on. Glass oh, for you. you. There we go. Little bottle of Chianti. You like Chianti? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. right, okay. <laughs> well... There we go. Ten episodes. Thanks for helping out as well. Oh, no problem. No problem. Merry Christmas, Anna. Merry Christmas, Stanley. Quick uh, Christmas kiss. Um, uh, no. No, no, no. I just went on the cheek, just like uh, a, a pet. Right. Um, actually, I'm just made a cup of tea in the kitchen. I better go and check on that. No, no, no. Sure, sure. Yeah. Hey, if you're making tea, you make one for me. Oh, oh, I think that might have been the last tea bag. I'm afraid. No, sure. Um, sure. Um, that, no, that's all right, Anna. Well, well done, Alan. You're the, you're the better man. That's the punchline, I suppose. Shame it took us ten weeks to get to it. It's probably the world's longest joke. Probably just, probably just drink all this by myself now. <laughs> That's all right. It's Christmas, isn't it? <laughs> well, look um, to all of you. Many thanks for listening. Um, we'll do some more of these in the spring without Alan by the sounds of it so make sure you subscribe on iTunes and as soon as new episodes come out you'll be the, the first to know until then uh, Merry Christmas to you all and peace and goodwill to you and yours ta-ta <laughs>